No one has impacted our world more than that one solitary life, and his name is Jesus. And no one will ever impact our world more than he will in the future. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. He died in Jerusalem, and he was nailed to a cross on that very first Good Friday. His body was placed in a tomb. After three days in the tomb, the tomb was empty, and Jesus was raised from the dead. And Easter Sunday is a day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You may know that the historical account of the resurrection is found in um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call those the Gospels. The meaning and significance of the resurrection, and you may not be aware of this, the meaning and the significance of the resurrection is found in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, and God has devoted 58 verses to that chapter. So hang on. We're only going to cover 22. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, that's on page 799 if you're using a Bible uh, of the bridge. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The resurrection day was the day that changed the world. Now here's a question I have for you. Has it changed your world? Has it had an impact on you? What's different in your life because of what happened on that very first Easter Sunday? In verses 1 through 11, if you want to follow in your outline, there's an outline in your program. Uh, In verses 1 through 11, we see that the resurrection is good news. The context uh, is in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Now, brothers, Paul writes, this is the Apostle Paul, I remind you of the gospel. So this is going to be a technical concept here for Paul the gospel. It's important, and we ought to be careful about how we talk about it. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which was received, and on which you have taken your stand. So the the Apostle Paul is is the writer here. He is a theologian, and he is a church planter, and he is the one who uh, was planting the church in Corinth. And this is who this letter is written to the church at Corinth. The Apostle Paul wrote this in about 54, 55 AD. When you think of Christian church history, this is very early because it'll be another 40 years before the book of Revelation is written by the Apostle John. And, you know, sometimes we forget, you know, we that, that there is a progressive course of history in the Bible Uh, There are times when there was no New Testament written and there were Christians and there was a church. And then uh, scripture was given over time. And over this probably 50-year period of time, the New Testament was written. The Apostle Paul addresses them as brothers. This is a term for believers in Christ. These are people who have already embraced this message of the gospel. And the gospel means good news. So they've embraced this good news already. Paul's purpose, and by the way, brothers, it's a term that refers to men and women, male and female. It's a term for the church. His purpose in 1 Corinthians 15 is to remind them of the gospel, something they've already understood, embraced, but they get confused about it. And there are people 
trying to confuse them or distort the gospel in Corinth at that time. So the gospel is not new to the Corinthians, but they need some clarification, and that's Paul's purpose here, and I think it's good for us because sometimes we can get a little bit confused on this concept of the gospel. In verse 2, the gospel is the only message that has the power to save you for an eternity. Look at verse 2. By this gospel, the one that Paul refers to, you are saved. He's talking to the church. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. So it's a message about good news because there's some bad news too. We're going to see that in a little bit. It was a message that Paul had already proclaimed to the city at Corinth, to the church. Again, it was not new. And it has the power because it is the word of God and the message from God. It has the power to change lives. It has the power to save people from the penalty of sin. Um, the Apostle Paul uh, refers to this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And to another church, he says, I'm not astonished, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation for, of everyone. The gospel has the power for salvation, eternal salvation. We're going to talk more about what that is. For everyone. It's for Everyone. Everyone who believes, first for the Jew, because Jesus came from the Jewish race and the gospel was offered first to the people in Israel and then it expanded to people outside of Israel. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And guess what? You're probably a Gentile if you're not a Jew because that's in the Bible. That's just a reference to everybody that's not a Jewish person. And sometimes we're called the nations. Uh, In verse 3, uh, next, the gospel is of first importance for what I, this is in verse three, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. If you read the apostle Paul, if you read all of the letters he wrote in the New Testament, you will understand how important this is, the gospel, and that we be clear about it and that we communicate it carefully and stick with the scriptures when we talk about this message of good news, that's why sometimes it's so hard for people to understand because there's so many ways people talk about it and they're not always biblical. And Paul says this is a first importance. This is a first important for the church, okay? This is why we exist, by the way. We have a responsibility to communicate this message, the good news, and to do it accurately that's part of our reason for existence it's part of our mission for the church to go and make disciples of all nations next the gospel is and now we're going to get a technical definition from the apostle paul the gospel is first of all that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures christ died for our sins Um, when jesus was crucified two thousand years ago His life was paid as a ransom uh, for yours. Hard concept to understand. His life was paid as a ransom. He died to bring a moral and legal remedy to sin, the sin penalty of the entire world. In theology, it's called the substitutionary atonement. Many of you in this room understand what that means, that Christ died for you. You understand it. It makes sense to you. 
and you've chosen to place your faith in Jesus Christ. For some of you, this might be new. And I hope what we have to say today is going to be helpful for everybody here. So the gospel is, is that Christ died for our sins. In fact, he was crucified on the cross on that first Good Friday over 2,000 years ago. Next, in verse 4, Christ was buried. Chapter 15, verse 4. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea on that first Good Friday in the evening got permission to take the body of Jesus. Let me tell you, those were both religious, Jewish religious leaders. And what they did was extremely risky. They came out of the closet for Jesus and he was dead. There's something about Jesus and his impact on them. They were willing to give up everything right there on the spot because they could have been arrested and put to death also. They could have been embarrassed and shamed. Uh, but they uh, come out and they, and, they, and they take the body and the body is placed in Joseph's tomb. So what's, what's the big deal about that? Well, guess what? Jesus was dead. He didn't just faint. He really died. It was such a big deal They had to put his body in a tomb within 24 hours. That was the practice of the Jewish people. And they wanted him buried by sundown. Next, uh, Christ was raised on the third day. That's also in verse 4. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus predicted this in uh, Matthew 12, verse 40, when he said... I'm, the only thing I'm going to say is I'm going to give you, this is to the religious leaders, I'm going to give you the sign. It's a sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in, in the belly of the fish or the, or the whale for three days, so the Son of Man is going to be in the earth for three days. And it's, you know, a little bit of a mystery there, a little bit of curiosity there. Jesus made a prediction uh, about this. So three days, Friday, Friday night, All day Saturday, early Sunday morning, three days. And so what's the big deal? The tomb was empty when the disciples went early on Sunday morning. When the women and when the men, the disciples went, the tomb was empty. Because Jesus wasn't there. It's because Jesus was raised from the dead. He had a new body, a resurrected body, but yet it was still his physical body that was resurrected. That was a miracle. There's no other way to explain that. It was the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. So what's the big deal about that? Well, it demonstrated Jesus' power over death, Jesus' power over sin. It was proof that he was who he said he was, that he was the Messiah of Israel. He was the Son of God. He is God. And we talk about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son is God. What's the big deal about that? The life of Jesus Christ is infinitely valuable. He gave his life. He died for our sins. And his death is big enough to pay for the sin penalty of the entire world. We could spend a few minutes calculating that. How big is the sin penalty of the entire world? How big is your sin penalty? You know, God could put a number on that if he wanted to to take a, okay, what's your moral debt? And just say, this is your penalty right here. We could put it in dollars or whatever, and then just start adding every person in this room. 
How big is it getting? It's getting pretty big. And then, you know, every person in this city and every person in this state and in this country, and then we're going to go around the world to the billions of people. That's a big sin penalty. But we're going to go back, too. We're going to go back to Adam. How big is this sin penalty? It's, the numbers are just off the charts. How big the sin You know what? His death covers people who haven't been born yet. And the numbers are getting bigger and bigger. But you know what? When it all comes to the end, when Jesus comes back and life as we know stops, there'll be a finite penalty. The sin penalty will always be finite. And my God knows how big it is. And guess what? Jesus is bigger because his life is infinitely valuable. Uh, So he was raised on the third day. Um, And he appeared to many. We're going to talk about that. And the appearance to many different people is they were eyewitnesses. They saw uh, Jesus. They they saw him after he died. Some of them saw him on the cross. And how could anybody get get by that? And then they they knew he was laid in the tomb. Joseph and Avermathia and Nicodemus saw his body for sure. They put it in the tomb. And then he's going to appear to many as proof. Uh, how important is the resurrection? I have a quote here uh, from Craig Blomberg. Uh, Christianity lives or dies on the claim of the resurrection. That is absolutely true. The Christi- Christianity, the purposes of us being here, lives or dies on the basis of the resurrection. The reality of Jesus being raised from the dead. It's the central truth of christianity christ's death burial and resurrection it is totally distinct from all other world religions totally distinct it separates no other world religion does anybody claim to be god does anybody claim to die for the people of the world and as he resurrected miraculously and there are eyewitnesses to record it and write it down some people throw out the gospel accounts matthew mark luke and john because there there happens to be some miracles recorded in them like the resurrection is a miracle. A lot of people in our world today take an anti-supernatural presupposition. They just assume miracles can't happen. Therefore, they didn't happen. Anti, you know what? I was that way until I was 25. I was an atheist and I had an anti-supernatural approach to the scriptures. I wouldn't even consider the possibility there could be such a thing as a miracle as the Bible describes but that all changed. In verses 5 through 11, the gospel changes lives. We're going to work through this pretty quickly. Verse 5. So after uh, Christ was raised on the third day, verse 5, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. That's pretty serious because, hey, if you question the resurrection, there are people you can go talk to who were eyewitnesses when Paul wrote this. Some of them, most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He's referring to people uh, who have died, believers in Christ who have already died uh, before this time of writing. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, to the apostle Paul, as to one abnormally born. You know, Paul, uh, Paul didn't find a relationship with Christ until many years after the resurrection. Verse 9 and, and, you know, Paul regrets that he didn't have that chance to hang out with the other disciples. 
He was separated from this. He didn't know those experiences where he could ask Jesus' questions face to face. And he says, I'm one abnormally born. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He says, I was an enemy of all the work that Jesus was trying to do. I was an enemy of, of the bride of Christ, the church. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not, a, not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. So I'm going to go through our list here, the people that Jesus appeared to. And we're talking about how the gospel changed lives. The first one on the list is Peter. Uh, Peter is one of the disciples. He's kind of the lead disciple. His name gets mentioned first in lists of disciples. And then in a smaller group, Peter, James, and John, Peter's first, kind of a way to identify the one that seemed to be the most significant in the group as far as leadership. Peter was a key leader of the original 12 disciples. He was the one on the night that Jesus uh, was arrested, the night before he was crucified, out of fear, Peter denied Jesus three times. He was scared to death that they would uh, arrest him and put him to death the night before. I would be too. I wouldn't have done anything differently than Peter. I can't imagine. I would have been scared to death. But at the resurrection, Jesus appeared to Peter, among others. Peter had many occasions over 40 days to experience conversation, relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That changed Peter. In Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up in Jerusalem, the place they crucified our Lord, where it would be easy for the Romans or for the Jewish leaders to want to arrest everybody and put them in prison or perhaps put them to death. Peter stands up and preaches the gospel for the very first time that after the death of Jesus and the church has its beginning and 3,000 people are saved right off the bat on the day of Pentecost. That's a changed man. Peter went on year after year as a follower of Christ and as a leader of the church. He wasn't perfect. But he had a major impact on the kingdom of God, and he was crucified in Rome. And when they came to crucify him, he said he wasn't worthy to be crucified like his Lord, so he has to be crucified upside down. Now what? Guys, people don't give their lives for a lie. People can be deceived, but you don't knowingly die for a lie. Peter had seen the risen Christ. He knew everything that Jesus said was true, and he trusted him. Uh, so that's Peter. Then we have the 12, and the 12 refers to that group uh, in, uh, that were the 12 disciples of Jesus. This includes Judas when they referred to the 12. But 12 is the name of the group. This is how you see them in the New Testament. They are a group like the bridge. Jesus appeared to the bridge, if you can imagine that. Well, it doesn't mean that everybody in the bridge was present. It just means that's the group. That's the group's name. The name of the group was the 12. Judas was already dead. And on one occasion, he appeared to the 10 because Thomas wasn't there. But he did appear to the group of disciples. Um, guess what? Those guys, except for Judas, who's already committed suicide, they all gave their lives 
for Jesus. Let me remind you of their names. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Judas, son of James, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphas, Simon, the Zealot. And then there's Judas Iscariot, who wasn't present. All of those people were willing to die for Jesus, a violent death. The only one who didn't die a violent death was the Apostle John, and they tried to kill him. They threw him in a pot of boiling oil, and he lived. How do you like to live with that? That he died in his old age. Uh, So then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, uh, 500 believers. This is a larger group. We don't know. It probably happens in Galilee where Jesus said he would go after the resurrection. May well have been that time when he appeared in Galilee and he gave the Great Commission. A number of people were there. So at some time in that 40 days, he appeared to 500 brothers. He probably did all at once. And then it says he he appeared to James. Uh, And I'm calling it James, the Lord's brother. The text says James. Now, if you know the New Testament, there were three or four James in the New Testament. Two of them were in the 12. He's not talking about the 12. He's already appeared to the 12. This This is another James, and it's a standalone James. Who is it? It's... One of his brothers, a half-brother, he is a, he is a son of Mary and Joseph. And Jesus is the son of Mary, but he is also the son of God. He had a virgin birth and a miraculous conception. This is James. James grew up with Jesus. James thought Jesus was off the charts here a little bit once in a while. You know, James is a big brother, a lot of cool things about him, but he's perfect, never gets in trouble. And now he goes off when he's about 30 and he starts saying, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. He won't stay home in the carpenter shop like the rest of us. And they have to sometimes, they, they want to go out and sort of bring him home because they think he's getting a little bit crazy. Then he appeared to James and that will change everything. That will change everything. Imagine seeing your brother who said he was the son of God and now he's res- you watch him being crucified. You know the whole story. You know he's going to go to the grave Now he's raised from the dead. That's going to change. This is who he said. He's the Messiah. That means he is Lord. He is God. And James is willing to lay down his life now for his brother and serve the church. He becomes a strong leader in the Jerusalem church. And he will uh, give his life for Jesus. He's beheaded in Jerusalem at the whim of the high priest in Jerusalem. Next, it says, all the apostles... In Luke 10, there were 72 sent out by Jesus. Um, Probably those apostles include some of the number of that 72. Over that 40-day period, Jesus appeared to them. And last of all, to Paul. His name was Saul of Tarsus. And then in a unique situation in Acts chapter 9, years later, Saul of Tarsus encounters Jesus, the resurrected Christ. He stopped in his tracks and heads on a whole new course in life and becomes the Apostle Paul, the leader of the church, the greatest church planter and missionary of all time. And uh, guess what? Paul was willing to die for Jesus. And uh, history tells us he was beheaded in Rome during uh, persecution right around the time that Peter was crucified upside down. He was willing to die for a lie if Jesus wasn't raised. Jesus appeared to him 
and he was willing to give his life. So um, the resurrection is good news. The resurrection also is the foundation of the Christian faith, verses 12 through 22. And first in verse 12, the question of Christ's resurrection. That's a question that you may have. I won't be able to prove it today, but it was the question of the first century, kind of a normal human response. Verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some people in the first century who had an anti-supernaturalist presupposition. Miracles don't happen, therefore the resurrection didn't happen. Paul is saying, and this is infiltrating the church, which gets to be a problem. Corinth is a Greek city, Greek philosophy background, three or four Greek philosophies floating around in the church. Not surprising that it would, that it would have an impact on what people started to think about the resurrection. Um, so that's the question that Paul will address. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So now the Apostle Paul begins to challenge the implications of no resurrection. What if there's no resurrection? Let's challenge that. Verses 13 through 19, the implications of the resurrection. Paul says, this is where the thinker, theologian, the Apostle Paul jumps in. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If it's impossible to have a resurrection, then Christ is not raised. Although, which means Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were wrong that there is no historical evidence. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, if that were true, our preaching is useless and your faith, and so is your faith. Now that is power, powerful. Paul is saying, we who are apostles have been preaching that Christ is crucified for you. He died on the cross for you. And lives are being changed and thousands of people are coming to faith. And hey, our work here is useless. And my work here is useless. And you're listening to me is useless. And he says, your faith is in vain. Your faith is worthless. Your faith is totally empty and has no meaning and no value. What are the implications of that? Folks, you're going to go to hell. That's how serious this is. I mean, Paul's just bringing it down. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. If there's no resurrection, Paul says, we're false witnesses, we're liars, we're deceivers. Verse 16, for the dead, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. That's kind of repetition. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Again, that's repetition. You are still in your sins. You're lost. You have to pay for, you have to make an accounting before God for your own sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Those who are fallen asleep are those believers who have already died before Paul writes this letter. And he's saying, guess what, folks? They're lost. They're not in heaven, they're in hell because there's no resurrection. That's not good news. Verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Paul is saying, if just this little religious thing we do on the weekends, if that's all there is, we are to be so pitied more than all men. We, we are, uh, this is a waste. Verse 20, Paul addresses the reality of the resurrection day, the reality of Christ's resurrection. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ has indeed. You know, the 
Early Christians had this saying, this greeting. You've probably heard it through the years. When a Christian approached another Christian early, he would say, he is risen. And the person approaching would say, he is risen indeed. I think it's right from this passage. He is risen indeed, and that's going to change everything. You know what? It's changed my life pretty drastically. I was an atheist. I was going in one direction. I didn't like God. I didn't like Christians. And I, worst of all, wouldn't want to be standing up here today talking to you about Christ if he hadn't totally changed my life and forgiven my sin and given me a hope and an eternal perspective and eternal values. The outcome of the resurrection, verses 21 and 22, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as Adam, in Adam all die, so in Christ uh, will all be made alive. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Death came through one man. That refers to Genesis chapter 3, the sin of Adam. And with Adam's sin came the principle of death into the universe, separation from God, physical death, but also spiritual death, eternal separation from God. Adam started it all in the human race. If you want a passage to look at, look at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, where Paul spells out the implications of Adam's sin. However, Christ was really the second Adam. Sort of Adam was given a chance to rule the world. He failed drastically, badly. Jesus was sent to be the one, and he did not fail. And he lived a life without sin. And through his death uh, and through his resurrection, all through Christ will be made alive. So if you stay in the Adam camp, in the natural camp, life without God, without Jesus Christ, you get the consequences of Adam. If you are in Jesus' camp, have embraced the gospel, the good news, you're spiritually alive and have a hope and a future for an eternity. Uh, so let me just summarize some of the main issues. When it comes, when we talk about the gospel, the message of good news, the message where we can access spiritual life, it's the only way that you can access uh, spiritual life with God. And here are some of the issues. First of all, the issues for every person, we've all sinned. We've all sinned. And the passage is Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's just real simple. All people everywhere have sinned. It just means you have missed God's standards of perfection. You're not perfect. These are, this is, we're talking about moral perfection. We're not talking about whether you look perfect or whether you got a perfect score on your test, we're talking about moral perfection, that you do the right things. When you fail, it's called sin. It's about missing God's mark. Here's the deal. We're all in the same boat. None of us here are better than the others. You may think you are because we compare ourselves with each other, but we're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. Now, here's, can you accept the fact that you are a sinner? Uh, secondly, we face eternal consequences for our sin. We face eternal consequences for our sin. The passage is Romans six twenty three. for the wages of sin is death. You know, wages are what we earn. 
If I went to McDonald's this afternoon and got a job and they paid me $7.25 an hour, $7.25 an hour, I, I don't know if that's minimum wage or not, but that would be my wages. That's what I earned for what I did. What we earn for sin ultimately is death. Not just physical death. Physical death is when the, uh, the soul, the spirit, the eternal aspect of man is separated from the physical. The physical goes to the grave, and I rot in the grave. That's physical death. But there's a spiritual death. Death is about separation. And this is about being separated from God for an eternity. Uh, that's the bad news. We're all sinners, and we're separated from God. And there are consequences. That is not good. There is good news, and here it is. God sent his son Jesus to be the remedy for our sin. This is the gospel. One of my favorite passages is Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was because of his love. God uh, sent his son. And uh, while we were sinners, and because we were sinners, Christ died for us. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus died. He took the death. He took the blow. He took the pain. He carried the responsibility. Uh, another one of my favorite passages is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Here it is again. For Christ died for our sins. You're starting to see that that's a pretty consistent idea in the New Testament. Christ died for our sins. He was our substitute. It's called the substitutionary atonement. God's wrath, instead of being poured out on us, was poured out on him. A quick illustration. Um, I want to make sure I got... Shirley Diger of Teague, Texas, 54-year-old grandmother, wanted some adventure, grandmother of three. And so at 54, she decided she wanted to parachute from a plane. Sounds pretty exciting. I'm probably not ready to do that myself. And so she got the instructions, found herself in a plane, 13,000 feet, and she makes her first jump. And she's strapped to her instructor. It's a good thing. They pulled the chute. Chute only opened partially. Well, that's not very good. Pulled the emergency chute. It got all tangled up. And so they head for the ground. The instructor instinctively tells her to lift up her feet, and then he positions himself underneath. So when they hit the ground, he takes the blow. She walks away. Now, he didn't die because he was paralyzed below his neck. He took the blow. He took the pain. I'm not saying anybody deserved it. There's the idea. Jesus stood in for you. He took the death. You don't have to take the death. God has one requirement for you to change your eternal destiny, and that is he wants you to trust him. Um, let's, yeah, thank you. I asked him to make sure I got this in. The concept of substitution. This is a substitute that Christ died for you, the substitutionary atonement. The concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That's me wanting my way, and I 
will control things, and I, everything is going to be around me. And that's sort of a way of putting yourself in God's rule. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Life is going to be about me, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. God substituting. That's the substitutionary atonement. Thanks for, for uh, making sure I covered that. Uh, number four, God has one requirement for you to change your eternal destiny, and that is that God wants you to trust him. God wants you to take him at his word. Trust means to believe. It means to have faith. It means to depend upon. It means to rely upon. You know, you go to the doctor and you get a prescription and nobody can read it, but somehow they down at the drugstore, they read it, and they give you some meds and you take them home and you take them. You don't have any idea what they're about, but you do it by faith because you trust your doctor. If you, you go to a friend to get some advice and you follow their advice because you trust them, God is asking you to trust him for what he said about his son. Um, in Acts 16.31, the scriptures say this. This is with the uh, Apostle Paul and the Philippian jailer. And the jailer says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He's also saying, hey, it's a possibility for your family to be saved too, because if they believe, they will be saved. You and your household believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe that he died on the cross, that he was buried, and that he was raised again. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. God says, can you trust me with that? Can you trust your future with that? Can you trust your eternity uh, to that? John three sixteen. Jesus said these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Best known verse in all the Bible. It's this simple. God sent his son. Why? Because he loves you and he loves me. And whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life doesn't begin when you die. Eternal life begins when you believe. A spiritual life, a new quality of life, a new dimension of life, a new you. So, um, it's about can you believe what God says about his son? I'd like to close uh, this time with giving you an opportunity. Many of you have placed your faith in Christ already. Some of you may have not. Some of you may want to place your faith in Christ this morning. And one of the ways you can do that is simply through a prayer. Prayer is one way to express your faith to God. I'm going to say a prayer. I'm going to go through it two times. The first time I'm going to go through it it's just so it makes sense to you, so you hear it. So, you, you know, I don't like to sit when somebody's doing a prayer and they're going to ask me to do something. I don't have a clue what they're going to ask me. I want to know ahead. So I'm going to do the prayer ahead. I want you to just listen, and then we're going to bow our heads together. And if that prayer made sense to you, I want you to pray along with me silently, but between you and God. Okay, the prayer is like this. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. We're just agreeing with God. I admit that I'm a sinner. I thank you that Jesus died for me and paid the penalty for my sin. I want to trust him right now to be my savior, to save me from sin. And I want to ask for his help to help me to be the kind of person that he wants me to be. So th that's, all. that's all. Now, 
If you've already placed your faith in Christ, that's not something you need to do again. But if, if you're not sure, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, I want to invite you to pray with me silently from your own heart. Just you talk to God. You mean business with God. So let's, let's just bow our heads together. Everybody bow their heads. And uh, just pray along with me silently from your heart, if that made sense to you. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. And I thank you that Jesus Christ died for me. And right now, I trust him to pay the penalty for my sins so that I'll be forgiven, saved from the penalty of sin. And I invite Jesus to help me to be the kind of person that he wants me to be. Now, nobody uh, looking around right now, our heads are bowed. If you prayed that prayer with me, and that, that prayer made sense to you. Would you just slip up your hand so I can see your hand? If you pray, just slip up your hand. Okay, you can put your hands down. I thank you, God, for those uh, who have uh, indicated their faith in Jesus this morning, that they prayed with me and, and uh, have trusted Jesus who died on the cross for them. And God, um, may they know right now that they're forgiven. May they um, have an assurance that they have eternal life. May they sense the presence of Jesus with them right now. And God, I just want to pray for all of us uh, this Easter as uh, we think about the resurrection. And God, I personally thank you that Jesus died for me and that he changed my life, that he forgave my sins, that he put me on a new path. And he gave me hope that uh, he's encouraged me, that um, he's helped me deal with a lot of sin, that he has rebuilt my marriage and given me a love for my family, for my wife, and for my kids, and that he's just given me a desire to um, let his love overflow into everybody's life. And so thank you, God, that... You died for all of us, and may we be grateful, may we be thankful, may we respond to you with praise, and may we who know you uh, respond to you with love. For Jesus' sake, amen. I'd like to close with a reminder from Jesus from John 5, 24. Think about this. I hope this encourages you. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Jesus is saying, if you believe the message that God has said about his son, present tense has eternal life right now. That's not when you die. It's right now. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life right now. Now look at this next phrase. Will not be condemned. If you believe in Jesus Christ right now, you will not be condemned. This is a promise of Jesus Christ. Take that home with you. This is a promise. You will not be condemned. And then finally, he has crossed over from death to life. Past tense already happened. Not something to happen later. It happens when you believe in Jesus. This is true about you. Okay? God bless you all. We're dismissed.